You're listening to Sermon Audio from Jerusalem Church, an independent Reformed church in Mannheim, Pennsylvania. Our expository preaching ministry is devoted to proclaiming the law and the gospel for the glory of God and the salvation, growth, and comfort of Christ's church. If you'd like to know more about our church, visit us online at JerusalemChurch.net. Here's a message that we hope strengthens your faith and comforts your soul. We apologize, but during a certain point in this sermon, the audio cut out and it needed to be re-recorded. You'll notice a transition at around 30 minutes. Jesus said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Think about that. Love for Christ's church, devoting yourself to the well-being of Christ's church, is the way that people know you belong to Christ. We confess the communion of saints in the Apostles' Creed. Communion is our association and fellowship, our oneness and unity. And if it's a truthful and meaningful confession, several things must be true of us as a church. We must first be members of Christ by faith. We must have true communion with the Lord and share in his spirit and his gifts. Communion with Christ is essential for our communion with one another because communion with Christ creates the communion of saints. Now campfires, they're great this time of year. And if you want to enjoy a fire, you need wood. Wood keeps the fire burning. Communion with Christ keeps the communion of saints burning. No wood, no fire. No communion with Christ, no communion of saints. Our bond and, and our brotherly love is a, are, are entirely dependent upon our communion with Christ and receiving His grace through His means of grace, the Word and Sacraments ministry of a local church. So then if we are to truly love one another, to be one in Christ, we need to commune with Christ. Because it's the grace and spirit of Christ that shapes and forms our communion with one another. So here's where, where I want to go today. Christ gives himself to you in the Lord's Supper to bond you together and excite you to brotherly love. Truly communing with Christ in the supper will cause the fire of love to burn brightly and warmly in our church. If our church's love, if, if our love for one another is dim and cold, it's because communion with Christ is dim and cold. There's a direct correlation between communing with Christ and communing with one another. There was a love problem in the Corinthian church, which means their root problem was communion with Christ himself. And the church needed to examine themselves and judge themselves rightly and repent. So let, let's try to understand several things so that 1 Corinthians can have a greater impact, the greatest impact in, in our hearts. Christ lovingly gave the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to his visible church. 
Now, I think this is an important point. Five times Paul said, when you come together. In verse 18, Paul said, when you come together as a church. And Paul considered their local church to be the church of God, as he said in verse 22. The church is not some undefined group of people who have no commitment or responsibility to one another. Christ's church is always manifested in the world in a visible, tangible, relatable way. It's face to face, people with people, people committed to people. When you come together as a church, the preposition there suggests gathering together in union with Christ's body, the church. Corinth had a common confession of Christ, a common communion with Christ, and a common commitment to one another. Ecclesia, the word translated as church, means assembly or congregation. Ecclesia is often used in the Old Testament to describe Israel's assembly. Gathering together in union with Christ and one another is what the church is all about. Now, what do I mean by visible church? And I don't want to confuse you here, but hang with me. Christ has one church. But we can talk about Christ's one church in two distinct ways, invisible and visible. The invisible church is everyone who truly belongs to Christ, who is truly united to Christ, who confesses Christ with a true confession, a true faith. Scripture refers to the invisible church as the elect. Why is it called the invisible church? Because we can't truly know people's hearts, right? Only God knows the heart. Only God knows who truly belongs to him. We are sometimes deceived because hypocrites sometimes play the part very convincingly. And then you have the visible church. The visible church is every baptized member of local churches. The, the visible church is everyone who outwardly confesses Christ and their baptized children, covenant children. But as Jesus teaches in the parables of the sower, the weeds, and the dragnet, which we saw in Matthew, the visible church includes hypocrites, those who only play the part. Many scriptures explain hypocrites inside the visible church. I can't talk about them, but I have a list here in my notes. If you want it afterwards, you, I'll, I'll be glad to give it to you. Throughout the world, the visible church gathers together to confess and worship Christ, yet some who gather are just playing along. They, they have the appearance of godliness, but deny it's power, as 2 Timothy 3, 5 teaches. Jesus will tell some within his visible church at the end, I never knew you. They did the church thing. They fooled us, but they never truly knew Christ. And it is to his visible church that Christ gave his ministry of the word, sacraments, and prayer. And from his word, sacraments, and prayer... His invisible church, his true people, which are certainly within his visible church, receive his life-sustaining grace. 
See, ordinarily to live outside the visible church is to live apart from God's life-sustaining grace and Christ himself. And this is why church membership is absolutely essential for, for true believers. When Paul said, when you come together as a church, he meant when you come together as the visible church of Christ in Corinth. Paul knew closet hypocrites were among the members, but he still referred to the visible church as the church of God that is in Corinth, as those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, whether Judas partook of the Lord's Supper or not, wherever you land on that, the Lord's Supper is a sacrament observed by those inside the visible church. And yes, closet hypocrites are part of the visible church until Christ returns and removes them all. And now we have a perfectly pure and sanctified and perfect church forever. And that's why loving church discipline exists. When hypocrisy surfaces then, when we know about it, when we're like their, their confession, their lifestyle is not matching up with their confession, they won't repent. Scripture tells us to purge the evil person from among us, which is how we must love those who refuse to repent with the intent of them repenting and being reconciled and them being restored. It's how we love them. So let's, let's think about now the benefits that Christ gives his church through the supper. Through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, Christ gives numerous benefits to his invisible church. Now, closet hypocrites benefit from the church. They receive the word and sacraments. They enjoy relationships. They are loved in the church. But see, they never truly commune with Christ and never truly receive the forgiveness of sins and eternal life because they don't believe in Christ. They're not united to him by true faith. They confess Christ. That they do. We hear the confession, but, but their confession is dishonest. It's hypocritical. Therefore, everything's empty for them inside the visible church. They only participate outwardly and to their own judgment. Who, who actually receives life from Christ through his word and sacraments? Who receives that life? Christ's invisible church, or we could say the true believers inside the visible church. They truly do commune with Christ and receive his benefits. Think about what Jesus said, verse 24. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Jesus gave the supper to his visible church. Do this seems to mean continue my beloved church, to receive my body and my blood as sustenance for your souls until I return. Keep receiving me. Keep coming to my table for grace. Feed on, on me by faith and I will nourish you and I will sustain you and I will strengthen you. So who actually receives Christ and his benefits? Listen carefully. 
Only those who come to his table in true faith to eat and drink him for the nourishment and refreshment of their souls. And there's another benefit in verse 32. Look at it if you would. And think with me here. Those who judge themselves rightly, who confess and repent, who receive the Lord's discipline as mentioned, will never be condemned. Ever. Will not be condemned. God disciplines his church as he disciplined the Corinthian church in order to keep them from condemnation. What love. The the discipline Paul mentioned in verse 32 leads God's true church, his invisible church, away from condemnation to true repentance and renewed commitment to Christ and greater obedience. That's what happened in the Reformation. Discipline leading to faithfulness and a resurgence of the gospel. Now, bread and wine are the visible symbols, right? You're tracking with me so far? You see them, taste them, touch. They're the visible symbols. Forgiveness of sins, communion with Christ, and eternal life are the invisible gospel realities represented by the visible symbols of bread and wine. You tracking with me? All communing members of the visible church receive the visible symbols of the supper but only the invisible church, only true believers receive the invisible realities of Christ and his grace and his mercy and the gospel. Why the difference there inside the church? Because some in the visible church eat and drink by faith and others eat and drink hypocritically. This this much should be obvious to us to receive the benefits and blessings of the gospel represented in the Lord's Supper, you must receive Christ by faith in the Supper. You must eat and drink Christ by faith with your soul. It's a meal for the visible church, but ultimately only the invisible church receives Christ because only the invisible church eats and drinks by faith. Are are you tracking? Faith is key to all that I'm saying. Union with Christ, a big point that I've been trying to make in this mini-series that I hope you've been picking up is that Christ did not give his church the Lord's Supper in vain. He gave his beloved church the sacraments to bless and benefit them. Imagine a 10-year-old boy uh, getting a BB gun for his birthday, and he's so excited to shoot this gun. Some of you might have gotten BB guns, and you understand the excitement. <laughs> My son Peter's like, I didn't get one yet. Maybe, maybe this birthday, buddy. All right? <laughs> yep, so just wait. Let's see. All right. But his parents didn't give him any BBs. How would that be, Peter? Yeah, terrible. You get the gun, you get no BBs. So now that this is becoming a personal family thing here, let's just open it up and say, I mean, how would it be? You have the gun, you're running around the house, but you're not shooting anything. You're not shooting any targets. You're just, he's pretending because he can't actually shoot the gun. BBs would have been really helpful for mommy and daddy to buy it with the gun, right? Okay. Christ gives you his visible church, the sacraments to bless you with his grace. 
But you only receive his grace by believing the gospel and communing with Christ at his table. And when you do, when you meet him at the table, when you commune with him, the blessings are incalculable. Your host gives you his gospel promises in the meal. Your host shows you the gospel in the meal. Your host strengthens and increases your faith, excites you to greater obedience, excites you to brotherly love, deepens your communion with him and one another, and distinguishes you from the world. From those outside the covenant of grace. And he does it all for your comfort and assurance through the meal. When you abide in Christ and you receive his word and sacraments by faith, he gives you unparalleled blessings that are found nowhere else. You can't go somewhere else and find what is only in the visible church. You can't. You won't get that grace anywhere else. Now, white shirts, they're tricky, folks, um, because they get dirty easily. One little droplet of whatever soils a white shirt. The tiniest little splatter of mustard on my white shirt at the picnic shouts out like a megaphone, I don't know how to eat a hot dog. You know, you're talking to people. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. So that's embarrassing. White shirts are easily sullied. The Lord's Supper and Christ's church are threatened and often sullied by pride, selfishness, inequity, and sin. Paul rebuked the Corinthian church because he was appalled at them. They were in trouble. They had made such a mess of the Lord's Supper that Paul said they were worse off for meeting. That's a toxic church environment. Something's wrong when it's better not to meet at all. That's saying something. The divisions among that church had corrupted their communion with Christ and one another at Christ's table. They put people into groups, the haves and the have-nots. It seems like what was happening here is that the rich showed up first, probably to a rich man's house that would have the space to host the church, and indulged in sumptuous feasting together, sometimes to the point of drunkenness, and the poor would show up later. Maybe they couldn't get off of work in time to get there as early, and there would be little to nothing left to eat. Some members would go hungry. Now, how would you feel if you were left out like this? They ate without you and without even thinking of you. Well, that hurts. And Paul chastised them. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you not despise or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Meeting together as a church to partake of the Lord's Supper was meant to bond them together, to excite them to brotherly love and charity. Instead, their church meetings were characterized by pride, selfishness, inequality, and sin. Whatever their confession, their actions contradicted the essence of the Lord's Supper. They were despising the church of God by their actions. Discipline was needed. And Paul was quick to convey his disapproval. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now, I'm not exactly sure what Paul meant in verse 19 when he said, 
For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Scholars take that different ways. I'm, I'm just not sure, folks. He, he might have been speaking sarcastically in this sense. Okay, these factions, all right, are actually necessary, right? Because they, they tell you who God really favors, and they tell you that God actually favors the rich. Sarca sarcasm, maybe? A little bit of biting sarcasm to, to put some pressure on them. But Paul also could have meant that God providentially used the factions to reveal who the genuine Christians were. And so either way, Paul rebuked them for their pride, selfishness, inequity, and sin, which threatened their church's fellowship and sullied the Lord's Supper. He said, verse 20, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. They had so corrupted the supper that what they were doing no longer resembled the supper. In fact, it wasn't the supper, not the Lord's Supper. And, and I find it interesting and intriguing how the language, the English translations don't capture this, but in verse 21, his own meal is literally his own supper, which is contrasted with the Lord's Supper in verse 20. They were not eating the Lord's Supper. They were eating the supper of their own selfishness. Add a few drops of cyanide into a delicious cup of, of iced tea, and the cyanide changes the tea entirely. Self-importance, self-interest, partiality, divisions, factions, and hypocrisy mixed into the communion of saints at Christ's table changes the supper entirely because the corruption strike at the very core of the gospel. Now, Satan knows how the Lord's Supper benefits his church. And Satan will do everything he can to rip us apart. So expect Satan to undermine the Lord's Supper in the visible church. And expect Satan to undermine our unity in whatever way he can. Calvin said, we know that Satan, in his activity, leaves no stone unturned with the view of breaking up the unity of the church. Do you think that Satan wants you to experience the grace and power of Christ in the word and sacraments ministry in the visible church. Do you think he wants that for you? He wants to keep you from the visible church in order to destroy your soul. And he'll lie to you a million different ways to convince you that you don't need the visible church, that you can have Jesus without his people. Many people are deceived in this way. Lost, they don't even know it. Don't believe his lies. There are countless benefits for you to enjoy in Christ's visible church. There is life-sustaining grace that is only received in the visible church, and Jesus will bond you together and excite you to brotherly affection and love by his Holy Spirit working powerfully when you receive his means of grace by faith in the visible church. His table is meant to unify, is meant to give us affection for Christ in one another, is meant to bond us 
together. And, and there are countless things in life just threatening our unity, threatening our affection, threatening our love. And, and we at Jerusalem Church want love to burn brightly and warmly among us. And for that to happen, we must be able to detect pride, selfishness, inequity, and sin. And we must be able to repent of it together. And then love will burn brightly and warmly among us. We want our Lord to bless our times together and not judge or discipline us because of our times together. And our misuse of God's blessings turns them into occasions for God's judgment. The Lord's Supper, when unworthily served and eaten, becomes a meal of God's righteous judgment and discipline. Listen very carefully to verses 27 through 30. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Now, that ought to challenge us to think very carefully about how we serve and eat the Lord's Supper together. And guess what? We all have a responsibility. Now, I think to eat and drink in an unworthy manner is to eat and drink without faith and love. I think that's part of it. Additionally, it's to eat and drink without properly examining yourself, without being honest about your sin and your need, without repenting. It's also to eat and drink without properly discerning the body and blood of Christ. I don't think Paul was talking about discerning the body as in the church. That's one way to view this, but I, I don't think that's what he's saying. That might be included, but I think that's secondary. The two verses right before verse 29, if you look at, at uh, 27 and 28, they talk about what? Christ's body and blood. Keith Matheson noted, quote, the most common interpretation in the history of the church is that Paul is speaking of Christians distinguishing between the consecrated elements and ordinary bread and wine. In other words, his statement has to do with the understanding that there is a real sacramental union between the signs and the things signified, end quote. So, so follow me here. To discern the body and blood of Christ is to understand the connection between the bread and wine and the benefits of the crucified body and blood of Christ, which are consumed spiritually by faith. So to participate while thinking the supper is just like a common meal, in fact, treating it as such, a common meal, is to dishonor Christ who has real grace to give his people in his meal. It is a serious thing in God's eyes to partake of the supper without understanding the sacredness of the supper. One study note explained it as eating and drinking in a careless manner without due regard to its significance as a pointer to the sacred body and blood of the Lord and a holy means of fellowship with him. We, we don't want to serve or partake of the supper 
unworthily. Would you agree with that? Knowing what he's saying about it? Hopefully you do. We don't want to misuse Christ's precious gift and turn it into an occasion for judgment. Hopefully you are like, yes, let's not do that. So we have a responsibility to keep the supper as pure as possible. Now, if someone's not coming to commune with Christ and his beloved church at the table, they should not come at all because their coming corrupts the communion. This is why it is vital to know some important things about one another before communing with one another at our Lord's table. We don't want it to be a meal of God's judgment. We don't want undiscerning people to eat and drink judgment upon themselves. What would that say about us? Sure, go ahead. We don't care. Drink judgment upon yourself. You deserve it. That's not the spirit that should thrive in our church. We don't want undiscerning people to drink judgment. We don't want to be careless with Christ's supper and welcome his judgment upon us as a church. We don't want unrepentant hypocrites to corrupt our communion at our Lord's table. Are you following me? Consider the weight of verse 26, that the supper communicates the gospel of Christ's cross. Don't we have the responsibility, brothers and sisters, to do our best to ensure that those who come to the table with us actually believe the gospel that we believe? What if they don't, but we don't care and we'll welcome them anyway? Think of the implications of that. Yes, we must know some important things about who we commune with at Christ's table. We want our Lord's blessing. We don't want our Lord's blood on our heads and our hands. We don't want his judgment. If we don't take loving one another, if we don't take discerning the body and blood, if we don't take examining ourselves seriously, we will turn the Lord's Supper into a meal of God's righteous judgment and discipline. Let's not do that. Agreed? Let's not do that. So let's partake of the supper with special care. Now, how do we do that? Listen very carefully. To honor Christ our host and to uphold the sacredness of his supper, we must be worthy participants. That's a dangerous point, Patrick. And I know it is. And I want you to think about what it means to be a worthy participant. Make sure that you hear verse 27 correctly or it will strip you of comfort and you probably will never come to the table. Don't hear Paul say you must be worthy or good enough in and of yourself to come to Christ's table. Don't hear Paul say clean yourself up first, be good enough, and then you can come to the table. Nothing could be farther from the truth. We don't clean ourselves up to come to Christ. We come to Christ for him to clean us up. None of us is worthy of his table. That's not what unworthy manner refers to. Christ is the worthy one. To come worthily is to come in union with Christ, to come depending on Christ, trusting in Christ, expecting to receive grace and life from Christ. Worthy participants come humbly. Come aware of their sin and need. Come penitently, repentantly, joyfully, hopefully, eagerly, excitedly, lovingly. 
The Lord's Supper is precisely for the unworthy who are one with Christ and desire his nourishment and strength. The Lord's Supper is for those in need, those who desire, those who expect grace. I think Heidelberg 81 explains marvelously how to be worthy partakers. It parallels Paul. It says, who are to come to the table of the Lord? Those who are truly displeased with themselves because of their sins. And yet trust that these are forgiven them and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and amend their life. But hypocrites and those who do not repent eat and drink judgment upon themselves. So the worthy come humbly and repentantly by faith. The worthy come feeling their spiritual need. The worthy come ready to receive necessary grace from Christ. The worthy come knowing that the Lord's Supper is a sacred meal, a supernatural supper through which the Holy Spirit works to nourish and strengthen the soul with Christ. Scan over the text. Paul tells you how to be worthy. It appears that worthy partakers come with a deep love for Christ and his visible church. We know what Paul doesn't commend. Therefore, we also know what Paul does commend. Worthy partakers come to the table with the love of Christ and his church in their hearts. Worthy partakers also receive from the Lord what Paul delivered. The gospel and the gospel pictured and given in the supper. Worthy partakers come with gratitude as Christ did. Worthy partakers receive Christ's body and blood by faith because they are for them. Worthy partakers partake in remembrance, which I take to mean belief in the gospel. Your sinus explained remembrance like this, quote, The design of the Lord's Supper is, therefore, a remembrance of Christ, which does not consist merely in meditating upon his history, but is a remembrance of his death and benefits, including faith by which we appropriate or take to ourselves Christ and his merits and gratitude or a public confession of the benefits of Christ, end quote. The Lord's Supper is a memorial. You might think I'm contradicting what I've said in, in previous weeks, but if you were paying attention, I have been saying that the Lord's Supper is not a mere memorial. Worthy partakers remember Christ's death and the benefits of the cross, and they also receive those benefits by eating and drinking Christ by faith. Faith is working in remembrance. Faith is feasting in remembrance. Worthy partakers receive the blessings that the Lord's Supper communicates. As we eat and drink, I do think we're proclaiming the gospel together. But even more, the supper itself is proclaiming the gospel as we participate. Christ is making a statement about himself and our redemption visually. The word is the gospel given audibly. The sacraments are the gospel given visually. That's very important to understand. I don't think we are assured of our salvation by looking inside ourselves. This needs to be clear in our minds. We're not 
looking for assurance inside of ourselves. We are assured by looking to Christ alone by faith. Christ is our assurance. But scripture is clear. We must examine ourselves. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? You're not examining yourself to find something worthy inside yourself or to find assurance inside yourself. You're examining yourself to see if you grieve sin and trust in the gospel. If you want Christ to strengthen you through his supper, if you want to repent and change your ways to better align with God's moral law, honest self-examination and confidence in the gospel are part of being worthy participants. We must also discern what's happening in the Lord's Supper because then we can partake not to judgment, but to life, strength, and comfort. Do you have true faith? Is your faith working itself out in your love of Christ's church? Do you believe you are receiving Christ in the word and sacraments? As you look to Christ, examine your heart. You don't want to eat and drink judgment upon yourself because of carelessness. And Christ has given you loving shepherds in the visible church to help you work through these things, to discern these things, to help protect you, to help guard the table of Christ, and to help you find comfort for your soul in the word and sacraments. That's why Christ has appointed us and put us in uh, the office of, of, of overseer. Glance at verses 33 and 34. What was Paul getting at? Love, right? Love for one another. When you gather together as a church to eat the supper, wait for one another. And if you're hungry, eat at home. Repent and come together as one body to commune with Christ and one another at his table. And you won't welcome God's judgment. You will experience God's blessing. Isn't that what Paul was getting at? If you're not committed to love one another as Christ commanded you, to love the visible church in your midst, you're not welcome to the table because no matter what you confess, your disinterest in loving Christ's visible church totally contradicts the nature and significance of the supper and therefore sullies it, corrupts it, dishonors it. Right in the middle of Paul's rebuke of the Corinthian church is the gospel Christ's love for his church is the bedrock of the church's love for one another. How could we possibly mistreat Christ's body, the church, when Christ gave his body and blood for his church, to love his church, to save his church, to commune with his church? How could we? To despise the church of God for whom Christ gave his life is to despise Christ himself. Don't pretend to love Christ if you are not entirely committed to loving Christ's body, Christ's church. When we are worthy participants at our Lord's table, Christ our host gives us himself to bond us together and excite us to brotherly love. There you go again, Patrick, talking about being worthy. Remember what I said about being worthy. 
True faith and love are necessary. And when we eat and drink Christ by faith, Christ bonds us more and more to himself and bonds us more and more to one another and excites us more and more to brotherly love. Your host was betrayed for you. Your host suffered injustice for you. Your host was flogged for you, crucified for you, shed his blood for you, bore God's wrath for you, established a new covenant for you, gives you his body and blood in the supper because they're for you, gives you a spot at his table because his grace, his forgiveness, and his life are for you. So when your host tells you to do this in remembrance of me, understand that he says this in order to give you grace, the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life by feeding your soul, his true body and true blood. He tells you to observe the supper precisely because he intends to give you himself in the supper because apart from the supper, you don't receive the grace he has for you in the supper. That's why he told you to do it in remembrance of what he has done and is doing. He continues to give you grace. And what does he want to do at his table? He wants to bond us together and to excite us to brotherly love. What point was Paul making? The church is one in Christ. Therefore, love must bond the church together. Christ's love for us is the glue that holds us together. Christ's love for us is what creates our love for one another. If you get one thing from today, get this. Communing with Christ will cause the fire of love to burn brightly and warmly in our church. And we commune with Christ when we receive him by faith in the word and sacraments ministry of the visible church. Do you know why we meet? We meet to commune with the crucified and risen Christ and one another, to love Christ and one another. This happens. Dear brothers and sisters, it truly does happen when we receive grace from our host as he feeds us himself in his means of grace. I'll end with this from J.C. Ryle. It summarizes what I'm trying to say. Here's what he said, quote, The Lord's Supper was intended to remind us by the visible, tangible emblems of bread and wine that the offering of Christ's body and blood for us on the cross is the only atonement for sin and the life of a believer's soul. It was meant to help our poor, weak faith to closer fellowship with our crucified Savior and to assist us in spiritually feeding on Christ's body and blood. It is an ordinance for redeemed sinners. By receiving it, we publicly declare our sense of guilt and need of a Savior, our trust in Jesus and our love to Him, our desire to live upon Him and our hope to live with Him. Using it in this spirit, 
we shall find our repentance deepened, our faith increased, our hope brightened, and our love enlarged, our besetting sins weakened, and our graces strengthened. It will draw us nearer to Christ.